0: In the sea of the feminine, it becomes very hard for certain individuals, for many guys, to maintain the opposite polarity. One of the reasons why this lover archetype is so challenging is that throughout most of human history, men only spent time with men, which is why it's very easy for a guy to lose himself when he's in the feminine. Without really grounding yourself or regrounding yourself, you can easily lose yourself. You cannot lose yourself into the feminine world, otherwise the relationship's not going to continue, right? Sex is not gonna, I mean, and sex is a great metric, right? If if she's not attracted to you, if there's no chemistry, there's probably no, there's no tension. You've probably jumped all the way to her side. So red pill teaches the opposite, right? Try to get her to come to your side. But that in itself is also, Uh, not sustainable long-term women only go into that illogical emotional state when with a man that they trust is strong enough or they think might be strong enough sometimes it's a test to see if you are strong enough the more you contract in anything the less you're able to enjoy life the rwando podcast is an exploration of the unconscious and the game of life be sure to visit rwando.com to get a preview chapter of my upcoming book infinite play and free access to my content library enjoy the show (laughs) All right, good morning, folks. I think you all heard that uh, rooster caw. That's how we're going to start all the podcasts these days. Today we're speaking about the lover, the lover archetype. Uh, I've kind of been going through the Gillette and Moore stages, not, kind of, not really intentionally, and I apologize for the roosters. Uh, speaking of uh, masculine expression, I have two roosters. They're going through puberty. They are uh, battling each other for dominance over our territory. So we might hear some rooster noises in the background, such as life. Speaking about the lover today, um, and this this episode is inspired largely by some of the threads in the Masculine Underground group. So, thank you to uh, those who started these questions um, around maintaining polarity in relationship. Uh, we speak about heightening polarity and masculinity in intimate relationships. We're going to speak about some of my thoughts on how the lover creates a reality of abundance in in relationship, but also can be taken out. And we're going to end speaking about uh, embodying the lover outside of relationship because, of course, uh, archetypes don't necessarily need other people to express. Of course, as a straight guy, your lover archetype probably comes out in relation to women, specific women or women in general. So we're to try to cover all of that. Um, this is a very timely... Uh, episode for me because even though I've been, you know, over the last couple of months been going through the stages uh, Kind of as interest came up, right? Like a few months ago I got really interested in, in father nature So we spoke about the king archetype and let's uh, do a lot of warrior stuff uh, more recently training for a jiu-jitsu tournament Is in my head battling so we did the warrior archetype and this lover archetype kind of fell perfectly um, in life because um, last weekend I was down in Bangkok To do my first jiu-jitsu tournament, Um, spoke about it with uh, Christian Graugard, who was on the podcast. Um, Did okay. I got a silver medal. I was in the, uh, if anyone's interested, uh, some people have asked me about it, who listen um, and are in the Masculine Underground group. Uh, I was in the adult category. I'm 32, so I should be in the master's category. But I was like, I could either be the oldest fart in the, in, the, in the young guys category. I could be the youngest fart in the old guys category. I decided to battle against the younger guys. My first match was against a 16 year old who almost kicked my butt. I'm, I'm literally twice his age. He almost kicked my butt. It was almost very embarrassing. He actually, if you know anything about Jiu Jitsu, he caught me in a triangle hold, and I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna get submitted by a kid who was born in 2004. Um, but I just like muscled through it. I ended up winning the match. Um, and then I ended up winning the second match by submission. And then the third match, honestly, I was kind of dead. I ended up getting disqualified by... Um, I didn't know this was a rule, but you're not allowed to jump into a guillotine. Anyway, rounds of jiu-jitsu, you probably don't care. But the real highlight of the day was that after the Siam Cup, after the Bangkok uh, tournament, um, I my the love of my life was in quarantine in Bangkok because she flew across the world to get to me. Uh, I'll speak a little bit about that in this episode. Um, so right after the tournament, I, I got to meet her. And it's been... Uh, there's only, I, I already had on my schedule to at some point in December talk about the lover archetype, kind of just fit perfectly in my life. Let's well, about the lover archetype. Uh, this, as I mentioned, this episode is brought to you guys by the Masculine Underground Group. Thank you to everyone who um, commented on this topic of maintaining masculine polarity in relationship. I'm referencing that thread in this episode. Um, For watching live Right now, feel free to drop questions, comments uh, throughout the episode. I'm happy to go off on tangents. We are going to focus a little bit on relationships or my take on relationships, both in casual relating, intimate relating, and then yourself. But if there's something specific that we we're touching on, you want to go in that direction, drop a live question, and I'm happy to go off on a tangent. Um, if, you're not, if, you're watching this, uh, if you're listening to this or watching this uh, recording, make sure you're in the Mask Underground group so you can interact with these live and uh, inspire the next episode. <clears throat> And if you're not, um, actually, I have a real real quick question and we're going to jump into the episode. I was looking at the Spotify stats and I saw that 35% of the listeners of this podcast are women, um, which is surprising because every episode is focused on men's experience. So if you are unable to join the masculine underground group because you're a woman, this is only for men, uh, and you listen to this show, I'm really curious why you listen to this show. Um, So if you could just like hit me up on Instagram or or email me or whatever. I'm really curious what has the 35% of women care to listen to the show for men. All right. And finally, uh, uh, actually two announcements. Um, On Thursday, uh, we have Molly McLaughlin from Sleep is a Skill podcast on. I've been trying to hack my sleep the last couple months for the purpose of increasing testosterone and well-being. Um, So that comes out, she has a wealth of information on sleep. And the masculine archetype challenge is available i'll speak more about that at the end okay so the nut of today's episode the lover archetype Uh, we've spoken about the anima the the feminine side of the masculine psyche before we're going to specifically focus on the aspect of masculinity that relates to the feminine that is how i'm just defining the lover if we think of your masculine archetypes your expressions of testosterone in as different characters as tend to do, like the warrior is the one that goes out and does battle, the king is the protector of the realm, Uh, the lover is that who relates to the feminine and this is a place where a lot of guys get uh, trapped or lost or it can be a dangerous area for masculine individuals because unlike say the warrior. That goes out and does battle with other warriors, with other warriors, right? Like the the expression that we call the warrior archetype does battle with warrior energy on the outside, right? Whether it's with other warriors, like other people, or the the, the war that is business or the war that is nature. Um, so there's a consistency with something like the warrior archetype that you don't have to worry about nuance, right? The warrior needs to be strong. The stronger the warrior is, the better the warrior does warrior stuff, right? It's very straightforward. The lover is a place where a lot of guys get trapped and a lot of guys uh, exploring their masculinity get trapped or stuck or lost because instead of going out and facing other masculinity, the lover goes out and relates to its opposite, femininity. And in the sea of the feminine, it becomes very hard for certain individuals, for many guys to maintain the opposite polarity, right? Because it's not warrior against warrior, it's, it's, it's masculine against feminine. And um, a lot of guys lose themselves in relationship, even, even really masculine guys. Like you see dudes who uh, totally embody their manness in life, and maybe they even embody their masculinity in a very grounded way in their casual relating, but then they catch feelings. Then they fall in love. Then they meet someone that really cracks them open and uh, uh, reveals soft parts of themselves that they've hardened up. And then at some point, that guy, the feeling feels so good, is so intoxicating to be in love, that he throws away everything that, that made him who he was, right? He throws away his personal serenity, his independence, his strength, and then he ends up becoming, um, I mean, the pickup community used to call this betaization. like an alpha male would become a beta when falling in love. Um, and uh, yeah, so a lot of guys become afraid of that and if you look at like, we're going to talk a little bit about MGTOW and how these guys are basically identifying this, they're so afraid of the feminine that they're like, we're not even going to deal with women, we're going our own way, which I think is a cowardly move because ultimately, and I guess the goal of this episode is that it's not only about not dying or not losing yourself, it's actually an opportunity uh, to really ground your masculinity and express aspects of masculinity that maybe you haven't been able to access before. because. Whereas with the warrior, which I guess is the polar opposite, right? Uh, there's certain parts of your masculinity that you can only express in battle with the, with the same, right? It, only in battle with other warriors can you really access that part of yourself. Same thing with the king, right? And only in taking care of others can you access that part of yourself. The lover, if you're not expressing if you're not interacting with the feminine and and you know this is, doesn't matter what type of person you are, but if you're a straight guy, this is absolutely true. If you're not related to the feminine, then there's some part of your masculinity that's not coming out. The more, the more concrete or material side of this is that the lover obviously affects relationships with women, so if your relationships are not satisfying, you probably have a hole there. So we're we'll going to start with a story, not a personal story, even though I'm madly in love right now. We're we'll start with a story we have probably heard before, uh, but it, it uh, encapsulates the goal of this lover archetype very well, and that is the the myth of, um, it's a bit from the Odyssey, um, the myth of Odysseus and the sirens. So you may have heard this before, I'm going to tell it again in case you, you know, whatever. Um, So Odysseus, uh, he's uh, with his crew, they're they're going through the Mediterranean, the Greek Isles, and here's about the the island of the Sirens. The Sirens are these uh, mythological feminine creatures, Um, there's different versions of them, but they're beautiful women with the bodies of birds, or something like that, Um, and they sing this song that's so intoxicating, it's like the most beautiful music that anyone could ever hear that... Sailors become so enchanted and gross with the music and they just need to go to it because it's like so So mesmerizing and we're crashing their boats against the rocks and these sirens even though they're they're They look like women and they're beautiful and they sing this beautiful song. They're actually man-eating beasts So once the sailors crash against the rocks uh, and their bodies are s- uh, strewn about uh, These sirens were singing the song come in and eat their bodies. They're man-eating women, right? So whereas uh, a lot of Greek mythology is a little abstract in what it represents with uh, what's going on in the psyche. The Sirens mythology is pretty straightforward, right? Like, it's basically showing about the Femme the Fatale who uh, intoxicates the man and ruins his life. Um, Odysseus, though, doesn't want to just plug his ears the way all, all of his uh, uh, crewmen are plugging their ears so they don't get intoxicated. Odysseus is the captain of the ship, and he wants to know... The experience of the feminine. He wants to know this, like and he wants to know this joy, um, so uh, of of the Sirens' call. So, um, whereas everyone in his crew plugs their ears, I believe they par- plug the ears with parsley, so they can't uh, hear it. Um, Odysseus uh, doesn't plug his ears. He has his crew members t- uh, tie him to the mast, and uh, no matter what he says, he's not allowed to um, be removed from the mast because, even though he's know he knows he's going to get intoxicated. They go past, the, past the, the island of the sirens. He hears a sirens call and he's just dying. He's like, no, we have to we have to go to the boat. He's screaming at everyone. He's like, untie me. We have to go to the sirens. Um, uh, obviously, he's tied, so he doesn't have to die, right? Um, so this, this myth represents uh, how the feminine can kill the masculine, essentially. Um, and it actually reminded me, uh, in the Mother Complex episode, I spoke about this briefly how um, Eric Neumann, who was Jung's protege, Carl Jung's protege, um, I think back in the 40s, he wrote Origins of Consciousness. And back then, he predicted a whole generation of men who would basically be powerless uh, to the feminine, powerless to emotions. And this this is really, I think it was in the 40s. So it's really interesting uh, reading it because he almost predicted the generation of um, murder-suicides that we've had in the last, like, 20 years, like since Columbine, right? Like, guys, in his uh, in his words, it was the mother complex of young men who are drowning in their emotions. Like, they cannot handle their emotions. They they often have an unhealthy attachment to their mothers. They often have weird relationships with women, if relationships with women at all. Um, and because they're drowning in their emotions, they can't handle it. They end up uh, compensating with violence. Um, and and you know, he didn't obviously predict school shootings the way that they are now. Um, but he did predict that the, you'd have this generation of men who have mother complexes who are extremely violent to overcome their drowning of emotions, and they end up killing themselves because they can't handle life. Um, so was really spooky reading this, uh, you know, this book that was written 60 years ago, uh, or 70 years ago. Um, but our goal, <laughs> going back to the point of the lover and um, the Odysseus myth, is how can you enjoy the music of the feminine without crashing into the rocks? This is essentially the essence of this first stage of what we're talking about of retaining masculinity in relationships. Um, Okay, someone asked about maintaining versus regaining lost masculine polarity. I'm going to try to make sure we cover that distinction. Okay, so let's talk talk about polarity and retaining masculinity first, actually. So what is polarity? Polarity. I mean, if you. I mean, the, the the word comes from the image of a magnet, right? There's two poles of a magnet. They can either repel each other or pull each other. Um, they are opposite, and that's what causes. I'm trying to get out of this sunspot. Um, that's what causes that feeling of tension, right? You put two ma- magnets in, in next to each other. Whether it's the the like poles that repel or the opposite that attracts, which is you know the essence of masculine feminine polarity. The opposites attract. Um, but you could feel that tension, right? If you put the two magnets together. There is no tension, right? If you put the magnets extremely far apart, there is no tension. There is a sweet spot in between where the tension is the most, where they're not touching, um, but they are able to feel each other. This is what is necessary uh, in, in uh, testosterone or masculine uh, or an oxytocin or feminine uh, polarity. Um, I've spoken about the the, the the reasons for this and the sexual division of labor in other episodes. So I'm not going to go through whole, that whole thing. It's like it's like 10 minutes to go through. Uh, I'll assume you know a bit about that. You can go listen to old episodes. Um, but the, the, the thing that you need to understand is that testosterone-driven traits and oxytocin-driven traits have... Op- uh, I actually, you will speak more specifically. Testosterone and oxytocin have opposite effects on us, right? Um, you inject testosterone into a man, woman, or child, they'll become a little more aggressive, a little less empathic, a little more competitive, uh, a little more uh, desirous of uh, having sex. Um, You uh, inject oxytocin into someone, a lot of the behaviors will be opposite. They'll be be less interested in competition, they'll be more interested in cuddling, they'll be more interested in talking. But but what's interesting, and I spoke about this um, with Dr. Charles Ryan when he was on the podcast, he wrote the book, The Virility Paradox, I asked them if there was a chemical opposition between testosterone and oxytocin. Like for instance, there's a chemical opposition between testosterone and cortisol, right? The stress hormone and the the masculinity hormone have the same precursor, DHEA. So if you're stressing out a lot, you're actually using up the raw material that would become testosterone. So this is why if you stress out a lot, your sex drive drops because you're actually using up what would eventually become testosterone. You get um. You do a lot of manly things that uh, spike your testosterone, you actually uh, become more resistant to stress because you're reducing the raw material for the stress hormone. Um, but testosterone and oxytocin don't have that chemical, imbal- uh, chemical opposition, even though they have a behavioral opposition. And you, know, you can look at this as a metaphor, I'm taking it as a metaphor of just like, um, even though masculine traits and feminine traits are opposite in many ways, um, it's not that they have to oppose and they don't have to compete. In fact, an individual can have both uh, a lot of androgen receptors, meaning he's responsive to testosterone, and a lot of oxytocin receptors, meaning he's responsive to oxytocin, meaning he can be competitive and he can be uh, empathic, uh, even though maybe not at the same time. This, I feel, is an important thing to, to recognize because you can be a super masculine dude and be really good at empathizing with a feminine. It's not like one – they're not mutually exclusive maybe not at the same time, maybe you're not gonna be competitive and empathic at the same time. In fact, you shouldn't, right? Like if you're if you're relating to your your partner, there's no benefit to having that warrior archetype in, in that moment. In fact, this is a place where I think a lot of guys mess up where in a, in a man-to-man competition, in an argument, in a debate, in any sort of conflict, you might have to, you know, you're going warrior against warrior. You might have to battle it out. You might have to uh, use your logos to prove who's right. In fact, most men respect that even in conflict. Whereas when you're relating to the feminine, when you're relating to an oxytocin-driven individual, specifically a woman in an intimate relationship who is going deep into her feminine because on some instinctual level, she trusts that you have the masculine side, the testosterone side handled, which is why you very often see women who are super logical and super aware in their normal life become uh, totally, uh, what's the word? How can I say this without coming off as offensive? Um... Just forget about like spatial reality uh, when they're emotional in relationships specifically. And I was speaking with this recently with some female friends. We're like, you know, I've uh, most of my female friends out here. They run their own businesses. They're successful. They're very capable in life. They're very logical. But in relationships, in, com- in especially with like in arguments with their boyfriends or whatever, they can never remember what was actually said. They keep going back and forth. I mean, it drives a guy crazy. It drives a logo driven person crazy. But you have to remember like when she goes into emotion mode, when her oxytocin uh, uh, oxytocin receptors are all being activated, it actually suppresses her ability to remember what happened, right? And um, anyway, we can think of many funny examples. I mean, if you dated women. You can probably think of many examples. We don't have to dwell on it, but th- these are the reasons why. Okay, so back to the tension. Um, tension requires that push-pull. You have to have those opposites for there to be any tension, right? If two feminine people are not going to have any tension, two south poles on the magnet are actually going to repel each other. Um, this push-pull is necessary because if you don't have the push-pull, if you don't have this space in between the two poles, uh, what happens? If they both come together, it's some version of codependence, Right? Codependence can be in different forms. It's not always that they come together equally and lose themselves, although that can happen. Um, and, and when we do see this, right? If you see uh, a man and a woman who are dating and like they, they have lost their both their identities, like they've merged into one thing where they like think the same way and do the same thing. It might be cute at moments, like if you could finish each other's sentences. That's like a nice thing, right? But when when the two people have no polarity. We all look at it and it's like gross, right? When you see two adults doing like something that like, you know, it's, it's lovey-dovey to the point where like there's no tension, we, we have this sick feeling inside. And that sick feeling is, is like a true instinct of like, man, they are wasting the whole purpose of a masculine and feminine individual relating to each other. I'm um, going back to sexual division of labor, um, but but very often, I am speaking you know from a male perspective, two other things can happen or some some combination of this instead of two people just losing themselves, uh, the man can lose his reality and go completely his her side um, and this is uh, this is a thing where um, I think MGTOW people use this as fuel of why they judge uh, women or this is like the fear of betaization that we mentioned where a guy uh, loses his masculinity because of the temptation of Comfort. Um, we'll speak about more of that in a second. The other thing that can also happen is the, the woman loses her reality and goes all the way to his side. And for a lot of people, and I think like the red pill community, for instance, who I'm not, I'm not anti-red pill, but I do think they, they miss out on certain things or like they don't look beyond a certain stage, which is the stage I'm about to explain a lot of red pill dating advice is basically trying, is like, they talk about frame, right? And frame is very important, right? As a masculine uh, in, in a relationship, given that when she goes into her feminine, she also often loses a uh, sense of material reality and it's natural, it's not something to be judged. In fact, as part of the beauty of women that she can, she can go deep, the beauty of femininity is that she can go deep into the non-material or emotional or energetic. Um, we'll talk about that later. Um, But anyway, a lot of red pill people, a lot of red pill dating advice is like, you got to control the frame. Uh, it's it's basically your way or the highway. And that's not in itself bad. It's that if your whole goal in relating to women is to get compliance, is to get her to lose herself and follow you, that might seem cool in the beginning, right? In fact, it is better than you losing yourself in terms of your own subjective experience, right? We're We're, we're not looking at morality right now. We're just looking at Subject, I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm never going to make a moral appeal, right? This is all about you enjoying your life. Um, so it might, at first, it might, be, it might seem great, like you can get her to do whatever you want, or like um, she's always available. And, and essentially, this is uh, you know taking advantage of attachment theory, which we're going to talk about in the second part of this episode. Um, the problem is, one, it, it, even though she, you might get compliance, which is like the goal of a lot of red pill advice, right? Get her basically to do what you want. It is building resentment in her, um, because of her anxieties. Uh, she might do what you want for a long period of time, but once you give that security, or once she once she gets fed up with that, all of that resentment is going to come out. Which is why guys who take this approach to relationships often don't have long-term relationships. You see a lot of the red pill guys getting divorced or um, or, or something, right? Like. They, they were able to basically trick a woman into doing something for a long period of time. Eventually, she, she uh, depending on her level of security, she's going to be like, well, I'm not doing this anymore. And then all the times that she went against herself um, because of the compliance tricks comes out and then she ends up hating the guy. Sees so a lot. And even on a more immediate level, even, even in that stage where it seems like perfect, where like you're getting your way all the time, it ends up always being a liability, and it becomes annoying, right? This is we're going to talk about stage five clingers in the second piece. I mean, this is this is basically you're not in a relationship that feeds you. You're basically doing some things to get compliance, to get uh, to get an immediate action at at expense to you later in the terms of probably losing her, but also um, just having to deal with someone who's annoying, right? Um, and we're talk about creating security relationship in a second. So. But we'll talk about the second piece that we're talking about of men losing themselves, which is the more immediate thing, right? Like if you lose your masculinity, she's going to leave you before you get to even enjoy anything. So why does this happen? Um, women, and I was speaking about this with uh, my buddy Chris, shout out to Chris recently, about uh, how women will test you, right? In many ways. Uh, they'll test your ability to be grounded. They'll test your uh, your security uh, Especially in the beginning of relationship, there's a lot of like a lot of flirting. In a sense, is testing to see if you can handle uh, handle tension essentially. And there's an important reason why. And this is re- the root of all female tests: is uh, can can you are you strong enough to be trusted? If if I be, get, become pregnant with your child, can, can are you strong enough to be trusted? And will we have a good child? I mean, this all comes down to survival and replication. So going back to Odysseus and the sirens this whole metaphor of her sending out her beautiful music to see if you can crash on the waves, uh, crash against the rocks. Women do this in different ways because if you do crash against the rocks, she will eat you. Because, I mean, and you know, just to go a little dark, or I mean, this happens a lot, right? Like, this is not that the woman means to destroy her boyfriend or take advantage of him, but she throws out these tests, these basically, I could call them bids for femininity, right? basically invitations of uh, will you give up your masculinity for this comfort? Now, I, I don't want to take a hard stance on this because I'm going to talk about like positive relationships. There's certainly times that uh, your partner can support you. There, there's times that even as the masculine pole in a relationship, there are times for you to be receptive. There is, there is that white dot in the black C in the yin-yang symbol, right? And, and vice versa. Um, but for the most part, if you're the man in the relationship, The masculine stuff is your responsibility. And if she can tempt you with comfort for you to go soft, for you to indulge in oxytocin behaviors beyond um, or to the point where you're actually giving up your pull, well, now you're no longer useful to, uh, to her. And I think a lot of women, particularly more insecure women or less conscious women, will eat the man in that situation, right? Like she'll tempt him with comfort, tempt him with comfort, tempt him with comfort, and then he becomes uh, effeminate. Um, He starts doing womanly things. He starts giving up his own life um, because on the surface level, there is a social reward. There's a superficial reward for feminization. Also in culture, there's a superficial reward, right? Like if a man uh, displays empathy, in 2020, in, in, this, in this era, he gets a lot of validation. If a man displays testosterone traits, very often that gets judged. So a lot of boys, as we've all noticed, if you're a human being, a lot of boys are growing up a lot more effeminate than before. Uh, culture gives you a superficial reward for acting effeminate in, in today's day and age. And women I probably throughout history, throughout Humanity have given some sort of reward because it's easier, right? Just like it's easier for men to relate with other logos-driven men, it's easier for a feminine person to relate to with a feminine person, right? Because that polarity, that tension between the two magnets, is uncomfortable. Tension is uncomfortable. So it's uh, so of course she's going to give you invitations to uh, come to her side. But if you come to her side, then there's no more tension. There's no more interest. And essentially, that instinctual test of can I consume you? I mean, just looking at the sirens thing, like, are are you weak enough that I can eat you? In which case I will, because there's a benefit to eating someone. And we can see this, uh, I guess like the, the hyperbolic example is like, uh, a woman tempts a guy, he becomes effeminate, and then she leeches off of him uh, for his money or for his comfort, they stop having sex. She gets bored even though they maybe have become, maybe have become best friends. She eventually cheats on him, uh, with some other guy who maintains that polarity or gives her a hard time. Uh, this guy gets resentful and ends up hating women. A lot of MGTOW. This is, this is exactly what has happened in some form. Um, or the guy becomes a super red pill and like, he goes far to the extreme of never trusting women, never going soft. He probably gets laid because this, this fits. He, he maintains that polarity. Uh, but he never has the experience of true enjoyment, which we're going to talk about next. But anyway. I want to wrap this uh, first section up on retaining masculinity. So, um, basically, the exchange is uh, exchanging comfort for your power and polarity. Um, so, the question that I posed, so this was this specific part, was inspired by a thread in the Masculine Underground group. Um, the there's a few things that I suggest. Uh, one is a very simple question. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a "What would Jesus do?" question. Um, which is for every act does this increase or decrease polarity and if it doesn't or whatever the answer is to that first question how can it increase it more right and this can this can be this can be down to the most micro level of like texting a woman that you're just starting to speak to it can be uh, in relationship in in, in a conflict or in a lovey-dovey situation because I think that the part that a lot of guys get scared about is like in those soft moments which is a part of intimate relating, right? In those moments that you're saying the I love you's and you're cuddling and you're being um, really loving and really activating your oxytocin receptors because that's an important part of life too, right? Um, in those moments, just ask yourself, is there a way for this to maintain polarity, right? And that's that's really all you need to do as far as recognition because uh, I don't care who you are or how, how much work you've done or whether all of this is new to you. I know that you can recognize polarity if you just ask yourself that question you will give yourself an answer that is probably very accurate does is this increasing or decreasing polarity you can feel it right you might forget in a moment where like the I love you are being exchanged it might be very tempting to go all the way feminine and like forget to maintain your masculinity but if you just answer that question you' be like, oh yeah I can I can say, I can say I love you as a man one of the reasons why this lover archetype is so challenging is that Uh, Throughout most of human history, for like the first 20,000 years that Homo sapiens or, you know, before agriculture, before civilization, most men only spent time with men. Uh, And we talked about this in the warrior archetype episode a little bit, like... uh, for our Paleolithic ancestors, women were mostly, I mean, as far as adults go, women were mostly with women, men were mostly with men, men did guy stuff, women did women stuff, and they got together periodically uh, for certain community events and to have sex. So this is part of why instinctually we have not evolved to necessarily understand the, the opposite, which is why it's very easy for a guy to lose himself when he's in the feminine, right? For any guy, you spend time where it's just you and a bunch of women socially, it it, it changes your reality. I mean, we spoke about this in reality episodes. I'm not going to get into that, but um, I'm sure you understand that part. Um, So back then in the Paleolithic era, if if a man traded his masculine duties uh, to only spend time in the land of women, right? Like instead of going out and hunting and and battling nature, he he never left the woman's hut or never left the the women's tribe, um, he would probably be ostracized because he's actually not upholding his duty for the clan. Like in a small hundred person clan, everyone has to do their, their duty. There's a sexual division of labor. If you have testicles, you have to go out and do, do the man stuff, right? In modern era, of course, this is not true. Um, roles, roles are more fluid. Like it doesn't really matter what type of body you have for most jobs um, and men and women uh, cohabitate in a way that we hadn't prior to that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I love living with my partner. Um, but this is this is a thing to remember of like we are not wired to spend this much time in the feminine biologically. doesn't mean you can't maintain your masculinity uh, while living with your partner or being around a lot of women or even being in a feminine environment. But it, it requires some active consciousness because left to your own devices without some without really grounding yourself or regrounding yourself, you can easily lose yourself. Which brings us to point two, um, you know, there's. What would Jesus question was the first one? Does this increase polarity? How can it increase polarity? Um, Very simply, in terms of activity, balancing the time you spend in the feminine or time you spend with women or time you spend doing empathic things with man stuff, uh, which might be literally spending time with men, which is why men's groups are so critical now because of the fact that we're wired to spend most of our time with men as men, but we don't do that in most of, I mean, unless you have that as your job or something. Most of us don't, which is why even though it's kind of an artificial thing, we kind of need all guy time, right? It's, it's actually critical. It's actually hormonally important. And, uh, you know, throughout history, uh, This yin-yang balance has been known, right? Uh, For the samurai of of ancient Japan, they they actually do the opposite, right? They would spend a lot of time killing. So they recognize that they actually had to balance out their killer instinct with doing something soft and more feminine like painting. Like this is the whole idea behind the warrior poet. Which goes down to a thing I want to say about uh, behaviors, right? Modern culture rewards androgyny a lot and modern culture has gotten to a point where like if you're a guy and you put on a dress... Uh, you're seen as so brave. Oh my God, you're so brave that you can go against gender norms. It's actually not. In fact, it's kind of now because of that. Uh, because of that script, it's a little more brave to do hyper masculine things if you're a guy. But I want to go into that because, like, when a when a super masculine dude does something that's stereotypically feminine. When, uh, when Daniel Craig wears a dress, I'm not saying that I was for or against that, but like, you know, Daniel Craig, James Bond wears a dress Or like a big, brolic dude uh, does something or pets a bunny, right? If, I mean, uh, or uh, when I was imagining um, Francis, if you're an MMA fan, Francis Ngannou is big, brolic, scary motherfucker. If you saw him petting a bunny, you'd be like, oh, that, that's you probably laugh. You probably smile like this hyper masculine dude doing this feminine thing. It's cute. We see a, a totally spineless, effeminate, uh, weak, uh, testosteroneless guy doing utsy things. It's kind of gross, right? Because again, it, that that grossness, that, uh, that that feeling that we get, is our instincts recognizing there's something messing up in that polarity. And if we were in a Paleolithic era, we would not trust that guy because that guy obviously can't do woman things, right? He can't. He doesn't have the he doesn't have the the genetic makeup to do things that women are particularly good at. But he's not doing the man things that the tribe is going to rely on. So he's kind of, that's why we feel gross about situations like that. Um, so anyway, my point is that doing feminine things is only interesting, cute, acceptable, tolerable, um, desirable when that masculinity is handled, right? It's kind of like um, if you see Warren, I mean, I would just watched this thing on Warren Buffett, billionaire, obviously. He drives this uh, beat up Toyota or something like that. He has this really like cheap car because he's very frugal. And when we see Warren Buffett, who's one of the richest men in the world, driving a cheap car, you're like, there's something interesting and like humbling about that. And like, it, we, we like looking at that. When uh, Genghis Khan uh, ate with a wooden bowl, there was something like pure about that. Like you're like, this guy has access to all of this wealth, but he's choosing to, to do this, right? That is interesting. As opposed to seeing someone who can't afford anything better than a beat-up Toyota, you see him driving a beat-up car. It's not that interesting, right? Because he doesn't have a choice. Same thing with masculinity and feminine activities, right? This balancing, uh, it's only interesting when you have the other side handled. Um, so anyway, I think you get that. And, and the third piece... Uh, this third uh, activity for maintaining polarity in relationship uh, is a physiological one. Because a lot of this stuff, you know, the asking the question of how can I increase polarity, uh, balancing your activities, um, this requires a lot of thinking. Um, the most, the the best, uh, I guess we call it a biohack, or like the most physiological, grounded thing that gives you the experience of maintaining that tension, maintaining that polarity, specifically in relating, sexually or intimately goes back to a thing I talk about a lot uh, is, which is arousal control. Being able to physically ground your sensation and not go for climax immediately, not go for ejaculation. Every time you're aroused is the best way to give yourself the physical experience of maintaining tension. And I'm not just saying this because I have an arousal control program. I don't care what, what, whether, how you learn this or how you practice it. Um, and in fact, you know, I I say this, I've said this in the arousal control episodes on the podcast. I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the reported benefits of semen retention are a bit exaggerated. I mean, I do my best to not do that even though I believe in it. But one of the things I'm 100% sure, I will I will die on this hill, I'm 100% sure that arousal control does this. If you can have sex without ejaculating or you can um, uh, experience a lot of arousal without ejaculating and ground this, one of the things that I'm 100% sure it does is that it retains that masculine polar, polar feeling in you and it makes you a better boyfriend on different, or a better lover in different ways. Like your attention will be better on women uh, or the woman that you're with. I mean, for physiological reasons, right? Like your body wants to complete the cycle. But also in that state of arousal, you're maintaining that parasympathetic experience uh, where you're, you're basically in feed and breed mode as opposed to um, releasing the tension. Obviously, ejaculation is a relief uh, of, of tension and if you ejaculate too much. You do go into apathy, right? Uh, because if you, if you rele- keep relieving tension, relieving tension, relieving tension without increasing tension. So like if you keep ejaculating without really cultivating a lot of arousal, um, you end up losing your zest for life because that tension is what gives you that, that desire to pull. Like when those two magnets are at that perfect distance where they want to they wanna slam together, that's where you feel the most. That's where it's most alive, if you will. Um, so that's why it's important. Um, so arousal control, balancing your man stuff with your oxytocin time. And this is something for me, like, you know, as a coach, I do spend a lot of time empathizing, right? Even though I'm coaching men almost all the time, I am using empathy, Right. I have found if I spend a lot of time coaching, which is a more oxytocin activity, I have to balance it out with lifting weights. Like that's the only thing, you know, like I cannot hang out with my friends. I cannot do soft stuff. I can't even do yoga uh, until I've done something hard to balance out this time that I've been empathizing uh, personally. But I think this is true for everyone. So um, okay, we're going to the second section here uh, because here's where I think Red Pill... Is not that it, they, they just like they have this blind spot, right? This this per- first part that we're talking about of maintaining polarity, maintaining masculinity in in a in a sexual relationship, is the first part that's critical, right? Like you cannot lose yourself into the feminine world; otherwise, the relationship's not going to continue, right? Sex is not going to. I mean, and sex is a great um, metric, right? If if she's not attracted to you, if there's no chemistry, there's probably no there's no tension. You have probably jumped all the way to her side. Um, so red pill teaches the opposite, right? Try to get her to come to your side, but that in itself is also uh, not sustainable long term. Uh, creates resentment, creates annoyance, and also misses out on the the beauty of a of a real polarized relationship where everyone is getting a little bit more out of it than they put in. Both parties. Um, I want to make a distinction between short gain seduction and I wasn't sure how to I wasn't sure what word to use that wouldn't sound corny, but like truly embodied love or like uh, high ROI love if you need like something more concrete. Um, so we have to talk about attachment theory and I want to speak like, so whatever I end up calling the second piece, which is um, short gain seduction would be like pickup stuff of like trying to get compliance, trying to get laid, trying to get that immediate benefit. It's fine for certain stages of life. But as far as like really embodying the lover, whether it's in, in I'm not saying it, this has to be even in long-term partnership, but it makes sense. Um, there's, a, there's an experience of love, specifically for the masculine archetype, like the lover, right? Where beyond just relating to the feminine and having fun, intimate experiences, it opens, and I don't know how to say this without being trippy or corny, but so it's a, bear with me, it opens an experience of abundance in your reality that you cannot experience on your own. I'll try to elaborate. Um, Actually, I will say this. This is a little personal story. Uh, when it comes to money, I've had money. I've had not had money. I felt abundant with money. I felt not abundant with money. As far as the dollar amount, I mean, assuming that you're, you're solvent, your needs are met, money for, uh, you know, the, the number that you have in your bank account largely is like uh, a fiction in, in some ways, right? Like if someone deletes it or it gets hacked, you know, there's like something not so real about money. But, but the feeling that you know, many people have had this, uh, whether you have money or not, you feel abundant. But when you're in love, there's an expansive – like when you're actually in love, there's an expansive feeling that kind of eliminates all fear. Because if you remember, if you did catch the episode it did on abundance reality, essentially what abundance versus scarcity is from a subjective experience is whether or not you fear whether you fear or trust the future, right? If you have a full trust in the future, it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter what your your relationships are like or what your your current experience. Like if you're super excited about the future and you and you just trust that everything's gonna be great and you're like, yeah, or you like you know that checks in the mail, whether it's metaphoric or literal you feel abundant, you feel expansive, and then your immediate present becomes more expansive. Like you can do more things, you're, you're basically fearless. As opposed to no matter what, what resources you have now, if you have reason to fear the future, you think shit's going to hit the fan or you think the person who becomes president is going to ruin your life in some way, that, it doesn't matter how much you have, it doesn't matter the quality of your life in that moment, you contract, you become afraid of the f- uh, future, and that is scarcity, right? When you are and and to go go back to our topic here, right? Short gain seduction uh, perpetuates um, the fear based reality because the guy who thinks he has to constantly game women. In order to get something from women, whether it's sex or validation or whatever, he has to constantly do tricks and pull pull rabbits out of hats and like uh, demonstrate higher value or whatever the pickup terms are. If he keeps doing that, he's essentially um, reinforcing in his belief system that he needs to fear the future because he doesn't. If he stops doing these things, um, he's going to lose the woman or he's going to lose the sex or validation. And and if you believe that. And you do those actions, you will uh, uh, confirm that in a reality. I'll tell a personal story on this. Uh, I was going to say it later. Let's just say it now. Um, so when I was in college, um, first time I, I really fell in love, I'd say, with my, uh, my partner there. She was great. I didn't appreciate her. I was reading probably too much pickup stuff. And honestly, I mean, to excuse myself, I was, I was 20, I did have visions. I was in my warrior archetype. I wanted to experience the world. I wanted to know things. I wanted to know women. Right? Um, I wasn't that interested at that stage of my life in in committed partnership. Even though, even though I didn't want to fall in love, I fell in love anyway. And this is before Red Pill existed as a as an ideology or had a term. But a lot of the writing that eventually fed into the Red Pill community existed, like these these principles of maintaining frame, all this like uh, dating advice that we often see online these days and I was following it and I was like, okay, I need to, it's my way of the highway. I was doing a lot of hard things and I was getting my way a lot. I got a lot of compliance um, from her. Um, so for like maybe nine months or so, I didn't treat her very well, but I was getting all of my needs met. Right? So I was, you know, in terms of playing the game in quotes, I was doing, I was getting the results I wanted, um, but I couldn't deny the fact that I was in love with her and I was denying a part of myself by pretending I wasn't. So at some point 9 months down the line i was thinking okay I, I can't deny the fact that i'm i'm she's a really great person i'm i am in love with her or right, i'm going to stop being a dick and i'm going to be kind to her and like give her what she's asked for like the commitment she's asked for and like uh, what she really deserves because she's was, she was great uh, the moment that i switched the moment i was like i'm going to stop being a dick she all of the resentment from the past 9 months were like i got her to do things that she Weren't really in her best interest, and I know nothing that like too terrible, but essentially like uh, she was longing to be with someone who was always pulling away from her. We're gonna talk about attachment theory in a second. Like that was like how I maintained, how I maintained the tension in the relationship is that I was always leaning away, so she was always chasing me. Once I stopped, once I stopped uh, leaning away, and I just like was like okay, I'll come to you. All of that resentment she felt from having to do all of that work chasing me, it all came up. Right now that she no longer had to chase me, she's like holy crap, this guy has treated me really not well for a long time, and now he's not maintaining the polarity by pulling away, so slowly that polarity went away, and then she resented me for those nine months that I didn't treat her well, kind of rightfully. And you see this all the time in these red pill-type relationships. It's like the moment a guy falls in love, he stops pulling away, and since pulling away was his only tactic, or his primary tactic for maintaining tension, once he stops pulling away, she loses interest. Um, Because... uh, The Red Pill and a lot of this type of short-gain seduction um, has this uh, belief that you need to battle, basically, and takes advantage of attachment theory. Attachment theory, uh, I've done a whole episode on it, so I'm going to go through it briefly. Attachment theory, basically, is uh, you're either secure or you're insecure. It's based on uh, how your parents treated you in most theories. Um, That's basically the the crux of it. When you're insecure, there's two expressions of insecurity. Um, um, Anxiety, where you're like, Chasing you're like a clinger, you're chasing after the person or avoidance where you're pulling away. In an insecure relationship, the tension is usually created by one person pulling away and one person leaning in. like you have this you have this all the time. The moment someone uh, leans in though, this anxious person who's always who's also who's too um, too secure to just maintain uh, sorry, too insecure to maintain polarity on its own, once the person leans in, they, they need that tension, so they need to pull out. And you see this often like people like this hot cold thing, which is uh, interesting on some level to our unconscious, right? Like when someone, a lot of us want what we can't have. If you have an insecurity, uh, uh, maybe it doesn't feel good to really be met by someone. Like if you look at, most of us, if you look at our past relationships, unless you've been perfectly enlightened your whole life, if you look at your past relationships, you look at times of like, man, I had a good thing going, but I didn't appreciate it. Or the opposite where it's like, man, why was I going for something that wasn't good for me? This is this is a, a attachment, this is a anxiety or avoidance, right? Um, the avoidant person is uncomfortable with being loved, so they're always pulling away from love. The anxious person is uncomfortable with being loved so they chase after someone who's not loving them. Um, and a lot of the short gain seduction, this red pill dating advice, uses this by basically teaching guys to be avoidant and when an avo- when a guy is acting avoidant with a woman, it triggers her anxiety so that she's always chasing him. Um, but it's a kind of a cheap way of, of creating attachment because I would say this, this is not real love. Um, and this is not I'm not saying real love versus uh, compliance for moral reasons, right? Like honestly, truth is, if you just want to have a bunch of women uh, being compliant to you, this this kind of this kind of avoidance tactic does kind of kind of work. Like if you look at a lot of these uh, old school dating advice, like being aloof is like kind of a thing, you know, like it it shows that you're not needy so that women become interested in you. and if you keep pulling away, depending on how insecure she is, um, Like a, a woman, basically she will uh, tolerate your anxiety. A lot of Red Pill advice straight up uses the term competition anxiety of like making your partner anxious so that um, she doesn't feel secure so she has to keep chasing you. Uh, and the thing is, the, the dark truth is that this does work to a degree, but even if you can maintain that game, even if you can maintain avoidance throughout an entire marriage or a long-term relationship or whatever. It's a lot of work. Even if you do it well, even if you never ruin the polarity and you're always pulling away, um, it's it's just it's just annoying, right? And and you have this experience like the stage five clinger, right? This experience, uh, you know, uh, I think this came from a Judd Apatow movie. But this idea of uh, a woman, or I guess it could be a man too, who like never leaves you alone, who's like you know, uh, after one date they're obsessed with you and chasing you and and you know They're basically in anxiety, right? You, you've gotten them, or maybe due to their own personality, they're super anxious attached, uh, so they're always chasing. It's super annoying, right? Um, but for a woman to tolerate uh, being in that stage where they're chasing after a guy who's not giving them the love they desire or deserve, she has to have an insecurity to, to put up with that, right? A really secure, high self-esteem woman won't tolerate a guy who's constantly running away. She'll get bored, she'll leave. Um, so that only works against... I mean, and this is even, I remember, I haven't been on, I don't even think these exist anymore, but back in the days of the old school pickup forums when I was like new to all this stuff and just like not knowing anything, um, guys would give advice and saying like, yeah, you know, this kind of like uh, keeping women in competition anxiety, it, it never works long term, right? It's great for having a short term harem or something, but eventually they'll, they will lose interest. And I'm not saying you know if you're a if you're a younger guy or if you're you know recently divorced you're new to the dating world and this is interesting to you. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? I'm taking a very amoral stance on this. Um, You decide for yourself where your conscience lies or what you think is right or wrong or whatever. But I'm saying that is it it is it is it's not an abundant. way to view relationships because you're always having to put in a little more work than you're getting back. Like if you think of your, your energy, your attention, your time in terms of units, like you have to put in, at best, you have to put in 10 units to get 10 units back, right? You, you put in 10 units of your energy, maybe you get 10 units of validation and sex in return. But there's a way to have a relationship where you put in 10 units and you get 12 units back. And that is where, that's what I'm I'm more interested in. I think most men will get the most out of in the long term. I remember seeing this uh, thing, uh, this, Jerry Seinfeld's new, uh, newest show, Coffee's, Coffee and Cars with Comedians, and him and Alec Baldwin were talking about how they credit their wives with their success, right? They've both, both been with their wives for a really long time, and they were both talking about, like, uh, when a woman believes in you, you can do more stuff. Like, you can accomplish so much more when you have that woman's love, because you're, every time, like, the more you love her, the more you get in return in terms of confidence and competence and stuff, um... I was actually going to tell this story at the end of the episode, but I'll tell it now because it's coming out organically. Uh, So I'm working on this podcast on the history of masculinity. If you're in the Masculine Underground group, there's a thread on it. Um, You know, so I've been writing, I've been doing a lot of research on Conquerors, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, all this stuff, like what are their motivations, how does it relate to testosterone and how they shape the world. But I was also journaling about uh, how much I love my girlfriend. And somehow it came out, like while I was just journaling, free writing, whatever, like I would conquer Persia for her. Like, I don't know where it came from. I know mean, it's a silly thought. You know, this, these are my private thoughts. I'm sharing them with you, uh, you listener. Um, but I, I was like, I would. I, I love her so much that I would conquer Persia for her. Like, I would do this very uncomfortable thing that's kind of unnecessary because, like, that's what my emotions are giving me. And not only I would, I feel like I could because that feeling of, like, this is going back to, like, the, the high ROI way to relate to the feminine is like a, the act of loving is not a liability. It's not like, oh, I need to – I because this is a thing that I've experienced a lot. And I think a lot of guys experience when they enter relationships and they're, let's say, working on their purpose. They're building a business. It's like, I only have so much time in a day. I've only so much energy. Like, I can't spend – if I spend two hours with her, that's two hours I'm not spending on my business. And there's some reality to that, of course. But there's a way to love, and the, what I really feel is the lover archetype, whereas in those hours of love that you love her, it gives you, that more, it gives you more energy, more confidence, more confidence that when you go back to your man stuff, you're moving a lot faster. I mean, this is the whole thing of the samurai spending time painting and writing haikus to go faster, or like you know, the modern-day version of the warrior poet, the gangbanger who raps on the – like, it's like that feminine, that feminine expressive side fuels the testosterone, uh, you know the whole yin-yang thing. Um, so the short, sh- short gain seduction takes on a scarce, uh, it-, it perpetuates a scarce reality where like we cannot trust the future so we have to constantly be at war with women or game them as opposed to um, how do you create a relationship where you are in- increasing security on both ends? Because the, the difference and just, I mean, I- I'm not trying to convince you, I am trying to convince you this is, this is better, but like at best, a compliance-based relationship will get you sex when you want. And this is like the advertisement of a lot of red pill advice when it comes to relationships. Like if you're doing it right, if you're doing the red pill thing right, she'll have sex with you. Your wife will have sex with you when you want to have sex. That's nice, right? That's better than not having sex, right? A sexless marriage probably means a depolarized marriage or a very resentful marriage. And yeah, fine. Follow whatever advice it takes that you can have sex again. But what's better than having sex when you want is that is instead of compliance, where she she'll be like, okay, she'll spread her legs when you you want her to is she is so there's so much tension and so much desire on her end that she comes to you. And that to me, that spontaneous bones jumping is a lot. It's just a lot. It's just a higher value experience than just getting compliance because you don't have to keep feeding that fire. That fire is burning on its own and is warming you. Um, anyway, I can make more metaphors, but I think you get it. Uh so it's creating a high high ROI connection rather than having a liability. Um Yeah, and anyway, yeah, the, the short gain seduction stuff only works to on a woman to the degree that she's insecure enough that she'll tolerate anxiety. High value women won't. Um so, so what is the opposite, right? A lover makes his more makes his partner more secure by offering her security, right? And I had this discussion with um one of my buddies who's uh, who was having a typical fight with his girlfriend uh, he didn't feel appreciated she didn't feel understood it's kind of the you know kind of the crux of men are from Mars women are from Venus type of stuff um, and she was being kind of honestly she was being kind of cunty to him and he wanted to uh, um Punisher for it by being cold, right? And then you see this all the time like she's being cunty, he's being cold, uh, she becomes more cunty because he's being cold, and he becomes more cold because she's being cunty. It's a negative feedback loop that just makes things bad. And then very often, big fights come in this situation. Um, their disagreement was over something really small. But because she was cunty and he was cold, they just got it just escalated and became worse and worse and worse. And now the relationship became a huge liability because they were both stressed and they both have important jobs to do in life, and they didn't want to spend all this time working on this thing because of this um, this negative feedback loop. A positive feedback loop is where you actually do things that create security on each other's ends so that it becomes less and less work to keep the fire burning. So uh I'm going to just illustrate this briefly with my favorite uh, topic that everyone hates, which is game theory. Prisoners' dilemma. I, I mean, I've tried to have a game theory episode, but people get bored with math, so I'm going to keep it real simple. Uh, Prisoners' dilemma. I have it tattooed on me. It's basically a situation where two two players have an option to either cooperate or defect. There's a mutual benefit to both people cooperating, but there's a selfish gain to defecting. Um, so if you think the other person is going to f- defect and you cooperate, you don't want to cooperate because then they're going to steal all your shit. That's basically the gist of it. They've done a lot of simulations, mathematical simulations. There've been various contests, uh, you know, in the in the computer world uh, or the logic world, on who can make the best strategy to win, to get the most value at a prisoners, prisoner's dilemma. And for a long time, because because uh, prisoner's dilemma represents a lot of political games, business games. There's a lot of application, even in biology. There's application. Um, So people have been trying to figure out what's the best strategy because prisoner dilemma situations happen in life all the time uh, where you can either cooperate for a small mutual gain or defect for a better um, selfish gain. So for a long time, the best strategy in prisoner's game uh, um, simulations was something called tit for tat tit for tat basically is whatever you do to me, I'm going to do back to you. If you cooperate with me, I'll cooperate with you. If you screw me over, I'm going to screw you over. And this this happens in relationships a lot, right? Like uh, the time that most of us feel most justified in being cruel or spurring anxiety or being cold to our partner is when they just did something mean to us, right? It makes sense. We have this feeling of justice on a very instinctual level. You push me, I push you back. So tit for tat for a long time was the was decided to be the best um, strategy in, in prisoner's dilemma situations because if someone's nice to you, you can be nice to them. But if someone's a dick to you, you don't want to be nice to them, right? They're going to take advantage of you. You got to be a dick back. The problem is the moment someone is a dick for the first time, you're both being a dick forever, right? In in a prisoner's dilemma situation, you might cooperate, you might cooperate, but the moment someone, due to whatever reason they think they could get one up on you, they go and defect, you defect on them, and then everyone's just defecting on each other and the pie shrinks because that's the whole thing with when you're uh, defecting on each other, you're actually shrinking the pie and making it um, just less for everyone. So so yes, both people are protected, both people have their walls up, but now there's actually less for both of us. Like we're both having to do with less resources, whether we're talking about money or points in a game theory simulation or positive feelings in a relationship. So after after many uh, contests of, of various uh, mathematicians doing this, they found out there's actually a, a far better um, strategy uh, than tit for tat, which is tit for tat with forgiveness, which basically means um, if you cooperate with me, I'll cooperate with you. If you defect on me, I'm gonna defect on you because I, I gotta punish you. I have to punish you and show you that I'm not someone to be walked over on, but you had forgiveness, whereas after some number of us being mean to each other, you forgive them and you're like, okay, even though we've been at war for the last two turns or the last three runs of the simulation, I'm going to cooperate with you and show you my kindness again to inspire you to also do the same. And if, if one person has tit for tat or one player in a game theory situ- simulation has tit for tat with forgiveness and everyone else has tit for tat, the one with the forgiveness actually gets the most value because they can inspire everyone to go back to the side of mutual benefit. So this maybe was like a more heady way of saying uh, the the most secure way and the way to create a positive feedback loop in your love relationship is yes you can you have to do you have to show at times you're not to be walked over on right but if you can respond to her pain or her trauma or her fear of the future with trust in the future in other words if you can respond to her being Cunty in that moment, recognizing that it's not that she's cruel, it's not that she's evil, it's not that you need to defend yourself. It's that because to, to be able to respond, it's all the turn turn the other cheek thing that Jesus supposedly said. Uh, I think um, is if you if you can turn the other cheek, if you can respond to an attack with okay, yeah, yeah come hit me. That is the greatest show of strength, right? I mean, I, I remember this is maybe a, a weird example for a love a lover archetype uh, episode, but. When John Gotti had a uh, John Gotti, the head of the Gambino crime family, a mafia don, um, had a, an assassination attempt on him. A lot of people said, "Okay, oh, you have to go into hiding. People are trying to kill you. Someone's trying to kill you." And he's like, "No, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hide." Then the day after someone tried to shoot him, he went onto the sidewalk of New York City with his lawn chair and read his newspaper in full sight of everyone because he was making a power play, like the the ultimate power play of like. Look how fearless I am. Look how untouchable I am that here I am out in the open and you can shoot at me and I don't care because that's how strong I am, right? That is the uh, epitome of masculine power in a, in a polarized relationship of like, hey, I, I understand because everyone's got their shit, right? Unless you were fortunate enough to have the most uh, perfect, secure partner as your first partner or the most perfect, secure parents as your parents, you have some pain. You have some wounds and in your intimate relationships, those wounds are going to come out in times that you don't mean to. Like you might project – everyone has done this. Men men do this. Women do this. Like If someone was cruel to you or hurt you in the past, it's very easy on some unconscious level to bring that pain out to your current partner. And knowing that that's in your partner too, right? Like she might blame you. I mean it's, it's totally natural especially when a woman goes into her feminine, goes into her, her – um, Oxytocin driven behavior, which which a woman will only do when she feels safe, right? Like a woman, women only go into that illogical emotional state when with a man that they trust is strong enough or they think might be strong enough. Sometimes it's a test to see if you are strong enough. Um so she goes into that state, and you can respond to her pain by letting her know, even though maybe her behavior is uncalled for and you know it's not right for her to attack you. You can separate the behavior from who she is and let her know that she, you still will keep her safe. You still love her. It's basically the tit for tat with forgiveness where it's like, you're like, okay, even though you're kind of doing the wrong thing and I don't want you to do this beyond a certain point, or I'm not going to tolerate it beyond a certain point, or maybe I won't even tolerate the behavior. I still love you. And if you can do that, that gives you that, that encourages her to be more secure as opposed to controlling her with competition anxiety you're inspiring her to be a secure person, which creates, I would say, a more pure version of attachment, where whether she consciously recognizes it or not, she is a better version of herself. Not not a more, instead of like trying to get her to stick to you out of fear of being abandoned, she, uh, she chooses to stick with you because she is more of a woman with you. And on the flip side, I would say, because like, there's a, there's a danger to this, and, I, and I've definitely fallen to this trap where like I t- I've taken on this strategy in previous relationships and have responded, done my best at least, to respond with love to a woman being not cool or like, de- like throwing traumas at me that I maybe shouldn't have dealt with. There's a danger to that, and I actually had to make a rule for myself because there, there are women out there who are going to there, there are people out there, men, women. There's, there are people out there who are, who are um, dealing with pain to a degree that even with your best efforts, they will punish you. Even with you being a very kind, uh, generous person, they will take advantage of you. And like, those are not people that you should be investing your energy in. My rule of thumb uh, is like, when you put in energy, I mean, if you can think of love in terms of units, when you put in your genuine, best of your ability, secure love into a person or into a relationship, is there a positive return or a negative return? Because... One of the worst things and you know why I think a lot of people are resentful at the opposite sex is that we many of us have had experiences where you're actually being a really good guy or good woman if you're a woman listening. If you're part of that thirty five percent of people of women listening to the show. Um, you're actually doing the best like you're actually responding like totally grounded and you know in, in a very empathic but stoic way and she's still punishing you, essentially draining your energy, right? So the, the question, I, my what would Jesus uh, question for this type of thing is, uh, does the relationship give me a positive return or a negative return? And you know, I, I would say the mark of a good woman is that she rewards your love with love. Um, if you're loving her and she's still giving you hate, that's probably someone that you should not, I mean, everyone has a tolerance level, right? Uh, that you should not stay with. And you know, in the same way that an insecure woman will tolerate a bunch of anxiety tactics and stick to a guy, for a high, a large amount of time, whereas a secure woman won't top, ta- won't put up with that, which she'll get bored and leave. You and I, I'll call myself out, like in, in past relationships where I stuck around when I'm giving a lot and the woman's really not giving me return, or she's even punishing me for my generosity. Times I've stuck around was because of some insecurity. I mean, I had a previous relationship where I was giving a lot and getting punished for it, and I stuck around because I had this belief that like this is just what relating is, um, which is a stupid thing. So I'm telling you now whatever stage you're in, whether you're in the sowing wild oats stage or you're seeking a deeper intimate partnership, uh, your relationship, if you, are, if you are doing the right thing, right? Because if, if you're being a dick and she's being a cunt back to you, then your responsibility is stopping a dick first, right? Um, that, that's a negative feedback loop. It's going to be a drain no matter what. But if you're actually being a grounded, loving, stoic, masculine individual and she's draining you, that's probably someone you don't want to stick with. Like that's just not a good investment. Because what the lovers do, if to look at lovers on both ends, um, is that they promote growth and a better tomorrow together. Like an uh, in in intimate relationship is only worth it if your life is better with it than without it. I mean, this is true for everything, right? It should be obvious, but because a lot of us have messed up attachments, with our upbringings or early relationships, a lot of us put ourselves into situations that um, don't benefit us or are a negative ROI, They are draining us, or we avoid relationships altogether, and I've done both, um, so I'm speaking for myself. And in terms of like specific male, uh, female stuff, and this is kind of this is kind of men are for Mars, women are for Venus 101, but the thing that most people need to feel secure is that men need appreciation, and women need understanding obviously there's more nuance to it than that but that's typically the root of everything right so i would say as far as like a diagnostic for with whether you're with a good woman or not uh is when you do things for her does she appreciate it uh it could be verbal appreciation, but most guys, in terms of love languages, most guys, uh, words of affirmation are not our thing. I think words of affirmation are more a chick thing, typically. But does she show appreciation? Or, or even looking at it like a— um, This is important to understand the love languages because she might say that she appreciates you a lot and it might not mean a lot to you because you're maybe an acts of service person or like, you prefer that appreciation is shown. But as far as a diagnostic goes, like you just need to recognize like, Oh, her way of showing appreciation is saying it, or her way of showing appreciation is touching me, and like I need to, you know, do the do the the translation of like this is how she's showing me appreciation. Um, because ultimately, if you're not getting appreciation for your good deeds in a relationship, you're going to get tired. You're going to feel drained. Yeah, that appreciation is what's what fills your cup up again. And you know, um, like in my my current relationship, I I love doing things for her because. I feel better afterwards because the appreciation she gives me makes it feel like a net gain every time I do something for her, which makes me want to do more things because it's it's beneficial to me. It's not like I'm doing it for some external reason, ultimately. Um, And the thing that men give women on the flip side is understanding, right? This goes back down to the don't fix it stuff of like, uh, of when she's in her pathos, when she's maybe throwing an argument at you that makes no sense. Don't worry about the that. Like You know, you, you gain nothing by by winning the logos battle when a woman's in an emotional state, right? The way you win is you give her the understanding of her emotions that she feels understood because that fills her cup up, which will inspire her to give you more appreciation. And you have this positive feedback loop where you're now both creating a more abundant reality, meaning you both can trust the future more because you have each other as opposed to you have to game each other to get something out of each other. Um, it takes it takes away the zero-sum game or the negative-sum game that a lot of people are in. All right. Um, we're going to f- end with this final piece on embodying the lover when you're not relating to a woman or not in a relationship of any sort. I just want to go back. I don't know, actually, if I addressed this directly, the question on maintaining versus regaining mass and polarity. So, maintaining... Everything we spoke about addresses maintaining the polarity. I mean, those three tips I gave, uh, the what would Jesus do question of... Um, does this increase polarity because you have that subjective sense how can i increase polarity and it sometimes is a thing that is not um is not uh it's it's kind of just like you, you recognize it and you do it right like uh there's a way to say i love you where you're totally spineless and and like effeminate about it and there's a way to say i love you as a man and if you just think like how do i say i love you as a man you'll probably come out you don't have to there's no like procedure you have to think about too much uh and then you know balancing your your man stuff with your empathic time and arousal control is just something I believe in. That's all for maintaining masculine polarity, regaining masculine polarity, which I assume by the question means uh, you're in a polarized relationship, you messed up, you lost it, and now you have to try to regain it. It is hard, right? Especially if she has built up resentment um, if you, if she hasn't seen you as a sexual being in a while, I mean, if you're in a long-term relationship, where you haven't had sex in a while, and you're kind of best friends, or, or, or uh, she tolerates you as her domestic partner. Um, or anyway, you see this a lot in, uh, in um, marriages where they're basically together just for the kids. Like she appreciates you as someone who helps her take care of the kids, but she doesn't see you as a sexual being again. This can be very hard, and this is actually the one time where I do recommend red. I mean, I shouldn't say. Well, this this is the time that I re- recommend Red Pill literature because for a guy who's lost all his masculinity, who's completely, who's basically crashed against the rocks, um, who listens to the Sirens' call, he couldn't stay grounded. He couldn't stay grounded to the pole. I actually just realized this, like in the Odysseus myth, he he uh, ties himself to a mast. The mast can kind of represent the phallic, the phallus, uh, uh, masculine. He re- retains his masculinity even while listening to the music of the feminine. If you lost that, if your mast is broken. Uh, you do need to do a lot of work to regain that because she maybe has created a lasting impression of you that you have uh, uh, You're not a man anymore. Um, I would go I, I would I would actually uh, Read the rational mail or one of those uh, red pill books just to understand like the importance of like regaining hyper masculinity And I would spend a lot of time doing as much as you can um, Of like of guy stuff. I mean, this is where you should you got to be lifting weights or doing some sort of strength training because it's very hard to feel uh, it's very hard to feel your masculinity when your body is weak. It's very hard to uh, feel effeminate when, you're, when, you're, when your body is strong. Uh, and then you have things like arousal control but like really going hard with uh, hypermasculinity. masculinity um, And it might, and if you're specifically in a relationship where the polarity is gone and she doesn't see you as a man anymore, you might need to spend a bunch of time apart for two reasons. One, um, just so she can get a, a new frame of, like so she can reset her expectation of you because it's, uh, even if you're making changes in your life, if she's used to relating to you as like the soft guy, the feminine guy in her life, it's gonna be hard for her to change that perspective. That's like, that's the external stuff of her seeing you differently. The internal stuff though is also very hard. And we talked about this in the uh, breaking social constructions of reality. A lot of our modes of behavior match the expectations of the people that we spend time with. And that's the whole uh, your income is the average of the people you spend time with type of thing, right? Your, your your behaviors often evolve to match your environment. You know, we're social beings, this is how it goes. So if you're living with someone or relating with someone or you're dating someone who has all of these expectations of you being weak or, or desexual or impotent or something, even with your best efforts, it's very hard for you to go against that um, because honestly, if you had the strength to go against that, you probably would have not depolarized in the first place. So, I you know, it, it, with a guy who's living with a girlfriend and they, they don't have sex anymore, I would say move out. Don't break up, but move out, move out. Spend, get your own independence back, get your own life back. Do a bunch of hard things, lift some weights, uh, spend more time with men who challenge you, and then start relating to her again. Um, because that, I mean, you need that separation. You need a separation. Excuse me. You need a separation to, uh, to have that pull between the magnets. Okay. We're going to this final section, the solo lover. Um, the lover archetype, if you're not relating to women, can be abstract. But that doesn't mean you can't embody the lover. In fact, it's the best time to embody the lover so that when you enter in relating with women, you have that uh, developed in you. Um and I would say I know this is maybe a spiritual kind of manifestive viewpoint uh when you really embody your lover in a healthy grounded way that's when you can attract the person you want in fact we're always attracting something right and if you're attracting the wrong kind of women all the time uh it's probably cuz you're embodying a certain expression i mean if you're if you're a- acting avoidant you're going to attract anxious women if you're acting anxious you're going to attract avoidant women um, both are insecure, right? Um, only when you're a secure lover do you attract a secure lover. Um, and you know, if, if that sounds like kind of mystical verbiage to you, we can put this in more grounded language that um, only a secure person is interested in another secure person uh, and, and vice versa. Uh, whereas you have to be a certain level of insecure to be interested in an insecure person. So I'm just going to boil it down to maybe kind of cliche stuff that I said in other episodes. Um, but the first thing of embodying a secure lover is loving yourself. I know self-love sounds very, you know, you know I did a whole episode on this, so I'm not going to repeat everything, but I'll say the one, the one phrase that I think is the embodiment of masculine self-love, which is telling yourself, I got your back. It's not patting yourself on the back and give yourself a participation trophy and saying, telling you, you that you're special no matter what, because that ain't true. It's saying that no matter what, if you go out and do the hard things, I'm not going to abandon you. Speaking to yourself, right? Even if you fail, I'm still with you, right? We're not going to shame ourselves. This came. I spoke about this in the shame episode, right? Shame is when you dissociate from yourself and you condemn yourself. So you're not on your own team. And obviously you can't progress or do better things if you're not with yourself. I got your back is your way of telling yourself. You, if you do hard things, you're going to fail sometimes. But I'm going to um, I'm gonna be with you. On that same note, practicing courage in love. Um... Even something like approaching, approaching women, like doing the pickup thing, cold approaching, which I don't think is a bad thing to do. But it's it's a good thing, it's a great thing to do, I should say, when you're looking at it as a practice in courageous love, when you're a practice of vulnerability. Even if you're approaching women on the street and telling them you think they're attractive, that is a way, it's, it's not about getting phone numbers, that might be a result. It's about practicing the experience of I, it's kind of like the come at me, bro, or the turn the other cheek version, but in response to the feminine. It's the John Gotti going onto the street without a bulletproof vest on. It's like, here I am. I'm so courageous that I'm willing to take whatever hits of rejection come. That is what's beautiful about such a practice. It's not about numbing yourself out to rejection, because that's only gonna the 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 mode of thinking that thinks I need to numb myself out to rejection is essentially Perpetuating fear of the future, right? It's like, oh, women hurt, so let me stop feeling, so I don't hurt, right? That's kind of like a that's, it's kind of pussy behavior, as opposed to uh, I can take whatever life throws at me. I can take the rejection. I can I'm, I'm willing to throw myself and take the leaps and see if I land. That's the boldest, baddest thing you can do. Um, so practicing courage, um, because it gets easier, uh, you know. So my girlfriend and I connected over Zoom, Uh, maybe I'll tell, I don't know how much, I'll tell the story at the end. Uh, I had a huge crush on her. I wasn't sure if it was required because we were speaking on Zoom um, over something not related to us relating. Um, And I, I just knew, I was journaling about it. I knew I had really strong feelings for her. I knew I had to break the ice. In fact, well, it turns out that she had a crush on me too and she also didn't say anything, but like as the man, I had to break the ice. There were no signs, as far as I could see, that she had feelings for me too. So I knew I was kind of going out on a limb. And there, there was like a temptation to kind of be sly about it or whatever. But ultimately, I, I, I recognized, I had to practice what I preach, right? I have to demonstrate courage and love. And I have to accept if she, you know, if she, if it's, you know, she's like, oh, okay, I mean, that's nice, thank you. I don't feel the same way. You know, I had to accept that possibility, and that's the boldest thing I could could do. And I knew that I had to do that for myself, not for her, not for a relationship, not for results. For me to respect myself, I needed to be bold enough to face the possibility of rejection and put myself out there. And, um, you know, she even said I was very brave, and you know, whatever rejection, scary things, bravery. But I knew I was able to do that because I had practiced putting myself out there so much that you know, that muscle was worked. So if you really want to embody the lover in yourself, even when you're single, even without, even in isolation, maybe you're, you're on lockdown right now and you can't go anywhere, you can't relate to anybody, putting yourself out there. You, 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 you even could do this on Tinder, I guess. It's not very vulnerable. I mean, because essentially all these dating apps and social media dating and all that stuff, it basically, it's uh, trying to take away the vulnerability for people, which is, I think, part of the atrophy of masculinity. I'm not going to go on this tangent other than this one bit of like uh, a lot of technology. I'm guilty of this too. As an introvert, I've benefited from connecting with people through electronic media because it is easier in many ways, but it it robs of, of the opportunity to be bold. Anyway, Um. Practicing courageous love, and this third piece I'll say is the most abstract, which I'm leaving it for the end. It's a little spiritualish. Take it for what it is. Which is faith in the feminine. The worst thing about red pill mgtow stuff is that it 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 uh it encourages men to distrust the feminine, and it is true, right? If the, the feminine or feminine women, you should not when a woman is in her feminine, you should not trust her sense of logic, right? Like, you should not trust her remembering ordering of events. You might not even trust her reasoning. If she says, this is why I'm mad or this is why I feel this way, she might be wrong because when anyone goes into their uh, oxytocin-driven behaviors, their sense of spatial reasoning goes away. It's just just how it is. Um, But if you want to really be able to relate to the feminine... In a way that gives you a high return on investment it really fuels your life as opposed to being a liability you have to have faith in the feminine which partly means understanding how it works right not having faith in the wrong thing knowing that it's it's uh the land of women is the land of pathos not logos and and it's not just faith in women but it's also faith in like that feminine essence even within yourself like that part of you that processes the the world through emotions is also important. In fact, that's the thing we seek, right? When we seek relationship and intimacy and poetry and music, right? These things don't have productive value. Like what is the productive value of music? Well, it makes you feel good, right? That's what the feminine is. It makes you feel good. It gives you energy. I mean, you could have all the money and the things and the gadgets in the world, but without that feeling, it's all emptiness. It's just like they're empty shells of being, right? It gives you that energy. and for a lot of guys, and I think it's true for me, you know, getting over my resentments at women in general, not to say that I'm completely free of that, um, but it, it, going back to the game theory thing of can you live life in relation to this opposite, in relation to your opposite, you know, in terms of polarity, of tit for tat with forgiveness? It's not that you, when someone is mean to you or the feminine harms you or like the siren tries to get you to crash against the rocks. It's not like you're like, okay, I'll crash against the rocks. You know, it's not, that's not that, right? You have boundaries, but you're also still forgiving that anytime it kind of goes for everything. Anytime someone is harming you, it's because they're dealing with some sort of pain. And it's not that you should tolerate the behavior, but can you still love the person? And when it comes to women or the feminine, it's like, you know, a man will break your body if he's upset. A woman will tear up your heart, right? As Louis C.K. has a whole thing, a whole bit on it. Like a man will hurt you, a man will stab you, right? But a woman will take a shit in your soul, right? Right? But can you, and and both of those things hurt. In fact, the latter probably hurts men more because we can relate to physical violence or confrontation more, I mean, to a degree. Um, Can you respond to the bad things and not contract? Uh, Because that contraction and, and you know, I'm talking about this on like on the that, that reptilian level, that circuit level. It's like the the part of our nervous system, the process of the world through sensation of like, is it safe? Uh, can I expand or is it dangerous? Can I contract? The more you contract in anything, the less you're able to enjoy life. Um, this is the root of sexual dysfunctions. This is the root of apathy. This is the root of feeling blasé. The root of depression, as opposed to being able to expand in the face of hard things, being able to expand and encompass. The tension that life throws at you um, because that is what abundance is and I and I know this is a you know this is an improvable like something I can't prove unprovable thing but the more you expand the more life gives you to enjoy I do believe that's true and whether or not you have stuff in your life whether it's money or sex or whatever if you contract you're not gonna enjoy it um, and I do believe that's true so being a solo lover comes down to uh, another, what would Jesus do statement? I think these questions are questions are good because you ask the question, you almost always get the answer. Um, is how can I be the version of man that fits my ideal woman? right? A lot of love, manifestation, whatever say it's like write down your ideal partner and do whatever. I mean you could do that if you want. But everyone has a concept of their ideal woman, physically, emotionally personality-wise, activity-wise, what kind of man does, does she relate to, right? You think about the, the secure woman who doesn't punish you or throw her past traumas on you. Well, what kind of man, like when you think of that secure woman, like what kind of man does she want to be with? Not the guy that is constantly trying to put her in competition anxiety. Like that's not the guy that that secure woman wants to be around, you know? Um, so yeah, who do you have to be? So this whole thing, This uh, I'll end with a little bit of, my life i mean i've spent a lot of time in the i mean i'm so critical of the short gain seduction things i have spent you know much of my 20s has been in that world like just trying to get the best for myself um not not out of cruelty or or but maybe a little bit of negligence just because i just wanted to be as happy as i could in an immediate term i didn't always think about the other person and and truthfully you know um actually i want to say one thing like this whole lover thing it applies to non- long-term relationships too, right? Like if if you're a younger guy who's just wants to experience life, if you're a divorcee who just wants to experience dating, you know, it's not that you have to, uh, this lover thing only is true in intimate partnership, although I think this is where you probably get the most out of it. It's uh, even, I mean, if you think of Casanova, if the stories of Casanova, he was not a short-gain seducer. Even though he would go and he would have, have an affair here and go off and be with this duchess or this princess and like he would bounce around and he, he had all these short, short-term affairs, as far as we've seen of, of his writing, he was not a short-gain seducer. He was not trying to create anxiety or, or uh, bump her down so that he can get sex, right? He made women better women, even in a short-term relationship, by making them more secure, making them more confident, making them more free and loving uh, fem- femininely and I would imagine at least as far as we can read of Casanova's writing uh, he made them f- trust men more um, and like I think the, the ideal example of this in the modern day is Zan Perian. Um I mean he's great Zan uh, yeah anyway and, and you know I, I will say that I've spent some time with Zan he really is the real deal like he does I mean as far as I can tell he really does embody that lover to the, the utmost and like you know and he still he still plays the field you know so anyway uh, I spoke about this a little bit in the, the king archetype episode I the term a major turning point for me was when I had an abortion experience it kind of trying to flip something in my mind and I spoke about this where I, like that activated the father archetype in me um, where I was like man I don't want to just bounce from short I don't, I just don't want to do the short game thing anymore like I don't want to bounce from thing to thing There the, even at 28, there was like a feeling of like, this is kind of Groundhog Day. It's, um, it's fun, but it's not fulfilling. But I kind of fell into a trap, which I tried to warn about earlier, which is like, for the next couple years, I was so ready to commit, I was so ready, or not, I mean, I shouldn't say I was so ready, because I definitely had fears, but I was so re- ready, at least intellectually, I was ready to shift towards something more meaningful and long term, because I was recognizing that the Bouncing around and more that wasn't even about short term or long term, but like short gain seduction was not filling, fulfilling anymore and um, <clears throat> actually, after the abortion experience, I <clears throat> needed to get my head straight I, I found it very emotionally jarring, um, just just the idea of a lump of matter that would become my child not being I, I found it very jarring emotionally, so I went to Peru to visit a friend and like just get away from America and get my head straight. And um, this friend introduced me to a lovely woman, who I only got to spend a little bit of time with, but I found her extremely enchanting and captivating. We we only spent maybe half an hour together, and it was kind of casual, but I remember hugging her and feeling very, uh, how should I say this, stimulated from our embrace. Um, But then I only spent a few weeks in Peru, and I ended up moving to Asia, and myself and this woman... uh, we kind of stayed in touch on instagram but we never even flirted because i think i, I respected her too much uh, i felt that she was too secure for me to to jump into flirtations i think it's just maybe not true but going back to the recent episode on sexual shame i was i was still in a kind of madonna horror thing so i find it for for a woman who i really respected it was kind of hard for me to go into into sexting i should say or, or even like like overt flirtation um, but we stayed in touch, and uh, over the last couple years, uh, we would exchange messages here and there, uh, feelings of appreciation. She was actually a woman who listened to this podcast, um, and this year, I, I or last year, I should say, I went really far in the bad relationship world. I, I I won't I won't go into it, but basically, I went I fell into that trap of like basically um, falling into a negative feedback loop where I was in a relationship for the I I, I'm actually, I don't even want to. I'll just say that I was putting a lot into something that was not feeding me and it was my insecurities that kept me there. And I, after that ended and I had another similar experience right after that, I was like, man, I've gone backwards. You know, here I am talking about male security. Like there's something wrong. Like I've, uh, I'm fucking up in my, on my, in my own book, I'm fucking up. And I saw a post by the woman I met in Peru, uh, about, uh, conscious celibacy and she, she, uh, uh, she went through this six month period of like abstaining from men and it was like great for her various things I was like oh I need to interview her uh, she's she's an intimacy coach I had her on my podcast in September if you listen to the podcast you might know who she is now um, and I interviewed her because I want to know more about celibacy because I decided okay I need to take a break from women I'm doing the wrong thing I'm going backwards and um, she offered to to coach me she offered to like, do some sessions with me and explore my my relationship patterns and we did this exchange where i coached her on some stuff she coached me and through this process of like getting clear around my lover archetype it was like man i really want to be with a woman like her like she really is the type of person i want to be with and <clears throat> this is when i started to have these feelings of man I'm, I'm in love with her like i'm she's everything i want and i had this scary moment of like do i break the ice or whatever and um well, I ended up doing that. And she basically said that she loved me too, but she was in Peru and I'm in Thailand and COVID's happening right now. It's the absolute worst time to travel the world to meet someone across the world. But we, we spoke every day for the last four months and, and through, jumped through many hoops where she had to go to Europe and then had to wait for the borders to open. And then she got, she got to Thailand right in this two-week window when the borders to Holland and Thailand were open because right after she left, Holland said, all right, no one can fly out. And uh, probably next week, uh, Thailand's going to close his borders. Like there's a short window and she was in quarantine. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I went to Bangkok to express the warrior to compete in the Siam Cup jiu-jitsu tournament. And then I got to meet her and it's been fireworks ever since. And um, yeah, and I would conquer Persia for her. Anyway, that's my last, my my sappy bit. That's it. In case anyone's interested, um, that's what's been going on in my life. Uh, thanks for, the, for everyone watching live. I uh, hope I covered that question properly. Um, if you're watching this in recording and video, uh, I've been getting messages of people uh, laughing at my public service announcement. But like, man, I'm, I appreciate that if you found me through YouTube or Facebook, whatever, listen to the podcast. I'm, I, I just feel like there's no reason to watch me. I, I appreciate that you want to watch me talk. But you might as well put me in your earbuds and go do some push-ups. I'm going to say this every time. I know I'm going to be – this is this is my – imagine this is my sponsor. The sponsor of the Rwanda podcast is the non-electronic get-off-your-screen life, analog life. But we have other things. Masculine Underground Forum. This uh, topic was inspired partly by uh, threads that people asked, the uh, questions people posed in a Masculine Underground if you're a man um, and you want to have real discussions around masculinity, if you want to get real feedback from conscious dudes conscious. I hate the word conscious. But dudes who are really working on this stuff, join the Masculine Underground Forum. It's a group on Facebook. You can type forum.masculineunderground.com into your browser or search for Masculine Underground on Facebook. Um, A lot of what we talked about today is in the Masculine Underground – sorry, the Masculine Archetype Challenge. It's my 21-day challenge to embody your Masculine Archetype in different forms. Um, I don't follow the King Warrior Magician Lover framework in that. Uh, We actually have seven different pieces – um, including the dark masculine, animal instincts, uh, war nature. But we do spend a, a, a three-day section on the anima, which is Jung's uh, Jung's term for the feminine side of the masculine psyche. And it's essentially the same thing we're talking about, uh, but more internal, right? It's not necessarily about relating to women specifically, although that will be the result. It's uh, how you relate to your own oxytocin drives, how do you retain your masculinity and uh, in, in, enhance your masculinity, uh, while relating to the software side of your own psyche. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can go to ruando.com/ slash archetype. If you sign up uh, in 2020, of which we have a couple of days. Actually, I'm probably going to extend it till through January. It still comes with a free coaching session. It's a one-on-one call with me. If you want, it's uh, the least expensive way to have a one-on-one uh, session with me. So that's at rwando.com slash archetype. And finally, this little teaser I mentioned it briefly I'm working on this uh, new kind of medium uh, on the history of masculinity because I was thinking like you know obviously I like the stuff that I talk about obviously I think it's useful it's great but um, I think there's a lot of lessons in masculinity about masculinity in history and I wanted to take a different take on understand the lessons because, you know, we could talk about these concepts and stuff, but like there have been men doing man stuff correctly since, I mean, I actually, I go all the way back to the dawn of sexual species, um, millions of years ago. Um, so anyway, if you're interested in that, I'm going to do probably a soft release of those episodes, um, to my list. So just join my email list. Um, I don't email a lot. Uh, basically, if you join my email list, you basically get notified when I have a podcast I'm really proud of or stuff like this. So um, you can check that out. I mean, the, the five episodes it's going to be is the the Winter effect and history of testosterone um, and sexual species, development of sexual species. Episode two is a history of violence because warfare is one of the expressions of testosterone. and has been an expression of testosterone that has shaped the earth, uh, shaped uh, the lines on the map, shaped our culture and civilization. Uh, the second is going to be on the father nature. Uh, it's called Studio of the Master, speaking about how masculinity has been passed on from man to man throughout history in different ways. Something that I think is most lacking in uh, you know, the modern welfare states, fatherless homes. This is something that is is missing, uh, which leads us into episode four, which is a generation raised by women, which speaks about a, a continuation of that. It speaks about the Fight Club. Using the Fight Club line, we're a generation raised by women about how... Um, Actually, kind of relates to some of the stuff we're talking about and in this episode in the Mother archety- mother Complex, on how um, a lot of masculinity in the recent decades, in the last, let's say, 50 years, has been shaped by women a lot, which is why a lot of masculine virtue has been atrophying in individuals. And the fifth episode is on Thomas Carlyle's quote, um, it's, called, it's on Great Man Theory, um, Thomas Carlyle's quote, um, history is but a biography of great men. Um, so... Anyway, if you want to learn more about that, just go to ruando.com. join my email list. Uh, I think that's it. Last questions. Going once, going twice. Get off your phone. Goodbye.